Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depth of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about retrospective revenge and baffled barkeeps. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Jonathan Lowe and Nathan Peel are voice talents Nick Goroff, Danielle Hewitt, Rissa Montanez, and Kyle Stroud. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale this evening is written by Jonathan Lowe and is performed by Nick Goroff. In it, A man who suffered a lifetime of pain seeks to even the score with the one who wronged him long ago. Now, without further ado, I present to you Fate's Shadow. So, anyway, I've always known who to blame for what's happened to me. Not that I thought about him all that often. Over the past 30 years, his name has only popped up maybe six or seven hundred times tops. What kept bringing it back wasn't chronic pain so much as my need to let go of the past. Because as you and I both know, the past is what made us who we are. And being stuck there, It's about as fun as being a dog, reaching the end of its chain. Travis. What did he do to me? Nothing much. Just hit me on the back of the head with a pile of books in our high school's hallway. But you have to understand that the hit came out of nowhere, and I didn't expect it. Because of that, my neck was in traction for a week. And that was just the beginning. Now before you tell me that if only I would have fallen to the floor and pretended serious injury, sued is an anagram of used, I'll agree that you're right. And that my father would have filed, if not my mother, 
Except, even if I'd thought of laying down at the exact instant I needed to, it would have been too uncool. At that age, the instinct tells you to stand up and push back, which is what I did. And after we both went to the principal's office, my antagonist went on to graduate, as did I. Only about five years later, I started having these horrific headaches. Developed osteoarthritis with pinched nerves in C4 and C5, including a lot of numbness in my left hand and a continual ringing in my ears. After about nine more years of quack chiropractors and physical therapy, I had a botched operation, which led to a fusion surgery and left me unable to turn my neck independent of my shoulders. As for the headaches, the numbness, and the tinnitus, they resumed. So did my thoughts about how easy everything had been for Travis. The money, the girls, the popularity. What had he done? Nothing much, other than to ridicule taunt and then attack a poor skinny kid who had work after school. A friendless wimp who was later forced to take drugs for the pain caused by being whacked down hard from behind with five textbooks in a jesting disdain. Okay. I know that they say the causes of osteoarthritis can't be pinpointed. There could be any number of factors involved. Like environment, Genetic abnormality, diet, virus, accident. But I think we both know the truth, don't we? So, can we really call it an accident? What happened to me? I'll agree with you that the best Sally Travis wrote was an accident. All the critics agree on that. Calling it trite, sentimental, sappy romance about a handicapped war veteran who woos a beauty queen. It might even be a fluke that Travis later owned what they call an estate, and married a younger woman who wore Versace and Vendi and Gucci. But was what he did to me anything like an accident? I think not. But at least I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt by finding out. I first saw Fate's shadow at Amazon.com late one night. That led me to a piece in time about Travis's much-talked-about marriage to a fashion model for Taylor and Klein, a rising actress who'd appeared on the covers of such magazines as Vogue, In Style, and later, Maxim. Travis discovered Goethe Rosewood four years previously at UNC back when he taught history and philosophy there. Then, Gerda dropped out of college during her sophomore year when she was offered a lucrative modeling contract, and Travis gave up his tenure to become the father figure she never had. Taking the post of assistant professor at City College in New York, in order to be near her, he was soon attempting to turn his love letters to her into a novel. And when Harlequin accepted and rushed the novel into publication, along with several dozen others that month, it surprised everyone by quickly climbing the charts out of obscurity and onto the New York Times bestseller list. At that, Goethe was wooed. She became Travis's Lolita, then his wife. Meanwhile, the parallels between his fictional story and his real life only added to the mystique and sales. So, when the book hit number one, Miramax bought the film rights, and the studio's execs signed Goethe herself to star. It's just such a wonderful Hollywood love story, isn't it? The kind you get flashed at you on Extra or Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood or The Tonight Show. 
but you want to hear an irony that you aren't getting on the news. For a long time, I struggled to be a writer too. That's right. While Travis taught history in college, I took night classes at one of those strip mall colleges for a time, although it wasn't a substitute. Of course, after my parents died with cancers, lung and colon, I mostly drifted from job to job, while avoiding the trap of making little replicas of myself without even knowing who I was. Probably wouldn't shock nor even interest you to learn that I inhabited at least a dozen dorm-style, no-frills, low-rent block-wall apartments at the nadir of human existence, and that during my many long and lonely years of scribbling in notebooks, I found myself restocking various retail store shelves with shoes, basketballs, duct tape, AA batteries, disposable diapers, toilet bowl cleaner, and a thousand other items consumed by the faceless masses. Shall I mention the roaches? Or the fact that I had to wear a collar at night to prevent excessive neck pain? Or that I didn't have a real girlfriend in all that time? Maybe I should tell you and Jay Leno about my days off instead. When I walked to the mall, just to be someplace cool where I could watch a movie and pretend possession of some purpose like everyone else pretended. No, you wouldn't want to hear about that. You got the picture already. You would probably never like me. A loser without direction. Except for where the urgent advertising of Madison Avenue directs us all with their deceptive ads that promise something more than what you get. Which is just plastic. And trans fatty foods and stylish clothes made in Mexico or Taiwan by malnourished children. With your skills, you probably call it designer wear. And eat at upscale restaurants, right? What do you mean, is that what I think? You want to know what I think? I think Travis was no better than Hollis Randall, a retired postal worker who was my neighbor for two years. A man who kept pigeons and believed in hell. Hollis was very close to death one night, the result of a heart attack. There are two tunnels when you die, not just one, he told me. And which one you are able to choose decides your eternal fate. Before he went more than a little nuts, he claimed to know the meaning of life, too. Said so the great mystery told in eighteen words, which, when heard, might drive you mad. He started to tell me, until I shouted that it sounded like a Twilight Zone episode. Then he wrote the words on a piece of paper and laid it on my suitcase the day I moved away. Did I read it? You bet I did. Although I wish now that I hadn't. Of course, words are just signposts and point at other realities. Take just one of the eighteen. The word why. Hollis wrote it as why. You could also say why as it wrote Hollis. Believe me, you couldn't handle the truth. You're not ready. Not if Lizzie Selman, another neighbor of mine, wasn't. She was a Buddhist assistant Dairy Queen manager who, after hearing the 18, went around after work putting locks on gates and chains on doors, leaving little messages behind for the frustrated owners of liquor franchises and porn shops. One read, Take up the way of not defaming that which reflects true self-nature. The tessio of the body is the harbor and the weir. The most important thing 
is the letting go of ego, and of waiting, and even of seeking. Only in the eternal present does virtue find its home. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Trust you? Let me tell you. One old golf geezer I told the 18 to goes. Man, oh man. What did I do with my life? My room is just walls now. Like a waiting room at the hospital could have been helping kids or something instead of watching ball games or buying pretzels at the supermarket checkout along with tabloid trash about the latest Elvis sightings of the Krispy Kreme. When I left him there, his forehead crunched into a kind of primordial expression like it could become anything given the right genetic instructions. Okay, okay. Their house. Well, it was a pretty impressive place, I have to say. How did I find it? Easy enough. Just to ask around. Everyone in Raleigh knew where Travis lived, from all the articles. Some of them knew the exact address. Most decadent beach house in Nags Head. It was the way one guy in Kitty Hawk described it. Of course, you know the deck, supported by those 15-foot concrete pillars. That's what I saw first. You can even see the Bodie Island lighthouse from the beach there. Not just still from atop that deck, from his jacuzzi. But how best to approach it, though. Should I just go up and knock? Introduce myself as a friend of a friend? Maybe lose a kite or a frisbee on the property? I doubted he would remember me. The thing was, I really just wanted to observe him. At least for starters. So, I sat down on this slab of stone next to a little hillock of sand and sea oats down on the beach, just outside his property line, and waited. Sat lotus style, my forearms on my knees, palms up. I noticed a construction company sign nearby, announcing acquisition by a developer willing to play God with an entire swath of shoreline real estate for the right money. Maybe other millionaires had already ponied up enough to be near Travis. I remembered that a reviewer on the internet reported that a sequel to Fate's Shadow was being written, and that the advance would be three million. Maybe Travis was up there, writing. Maybe I'd see him crossing the big bay windows with a sheaf of papers, walking back and forth. As I waited to witness that, I thought about how my mother could have used even half a million as an anagram of sued. How she deserved to live in that house, and how, after Fate's shadow, all she had now was a tiny plot of dirt in a low-rent cemetery. Then I saw him, up there, 
Travis. Saw him come to the window. Before he saw me, I turned slightly away and closed my eyes tight. I knew it was him, and it was worse than I thought it might be. He hadn't changed as much as me. Still had his full head of black hair, well, mine had receded and grayed. At ease and confident, the tall, virile man in the high window resembled actor Barry Bostwick. Among all of his possessions, the only two things he didn't appear to own was an aging body or a beer gut. Unfortunately for him. My left bicep started jumping like a Morse code then, next to pinched nerves. I imagine the message was from my father, encouraging me to proceed, then from my mother, telling me to go home. It was at that moment when I decided I would do something, although I didn't know what. I'd have to meet him, talk to him to know that. But it would be something, I knew that much. I wouldn't be going home empty-handed. Still, that's all I was thinking at that point, really. You do see that, right? Because when I finally looked up again, Travis was gone. And what did I do? I walked back to my car, got a hotel room, and went to sleep. The next day I returned to the same spot, at the same time still undecided. My theory was that if he saw me there again, pretending to meditate, he might come down from his heaven to my hell and reveal his true character. Lucifer once fell from heaven, they say. Maybe Travis would fall from his if a story was slipped to the tabloids. Or maybe not. Maybe there was something else I might do. Something painful, like what he did to me. But Travis didn't come down, although this time he looked down at me several times. He's wearing a dark purple robe when he did, and carried a glass of red wine. Good for the heart, they say. His, not mine. After the third time he pulled the curtains, or rather pushed a button so that they closed. So it was obvious that Gerda was not with him. Maybe she was at a photo shoot and would join him for the weekend. This was Thursday, so I knew that I'd better think of something quick if I wanted to confront him alone. And when the idea hit me, I was idly looking out at the distant breakers far beyond the intervening sandbars. A place which might once have evoked a sense of youthful exhilaration for me, had I been someone else. Someone like Travis, and not some computer relationship junkie with photos and profiles out there on the net. Anyway, on the next day, the fateful day, I came prepared. I brought food and water, among other things, to wait him out. Obviously, he was only coming outside when I wasn't there. Maybe he had fans and wasn't quite sure yet if I was one of them. Maybe he didn't like prying eyes, which is why he'd chosen the 27959 zip code instead of 90210. Or perhaps he had something to hide. And in the meantime, it was better to be the king here than a pawn there. In any event, when I took up my position this time, I had made certain he would have to come down past me to get out. No doubt he would be asking me, too, if I'd seen who'd put the kryptonite bicycle lock on his front gate, preventing him from leaving. 
But then, and you can call it fate if you like, he surprised me, Travis did. He came down to me without first trying to leave. I knew he hadn't seen me slip the bike lock around the connecting bars of his automatic gate back at the road. I mean, because of his demeanor, which was more like courtesy. He came slowly down the wrought iron steps, descending from the deck, studying me with the slightest smile. He was wearing blue jeans and a black cotton button-down shirt. His eyes shaded by the kind of sunglasses favored by media moguls and action film stars. I kept my lotus pose, unmoving, for fear he'd stop at some point. But he didn't. He walked right up to me. He must have decided I was harmless when his smile widened. Want to tell me what you're doing? He asked, without much evident disapproval. His voice was deep. Something I've read that women find sexy. That close, I did detect wrinkles on his neck. Although his sunglasses effectively hid any laugh lines. Still, he looked remarkably fit for a man in his fifties. Me? I replied. Oh, I'm just contemplating the mysteries of the universe, that's all. Why here, though? He made a hand motion, which may have suggested ownership or dismissal. This is a comfortable rock. Does my presence bother you? He thought about that. Then he looked away toward the distant lighthouse. Nah, he decided. Just kind of unusual. Kind of spooky, seeing you sitting down here like that. What's your name? Name? I asked, as though I didn't know what the word meant. I'm sorry, I've just been to a place without names. He chuckled wryly. You mean where nobody knows your name? Like the opposite of Cheers? Something like that, I said. Except names don't matter, really. I grasped a handful of sand and let the grain slowly filter through my fingers. What name would you give to each of these grains, for instance? Moments of time, perhaps, like sands in an hourglass? Now, and now, and now, and... He huffed air from his nose, smiling and nodding. You're far out, he said. You're right, I admitted. But would you try to imagine something for me? Just imagine two points in empty space, with nothing but a vast vacuum between them. And that you are one of those points, and someone you know is the other. Who? That doesn't matter, I said. Okay. Okay. Now tell me, what is it that determines the distance between you and this other person? I don't know, he replied, this time with a trace of annoyance in his tone. What do you mean? Okay, when you move toward this person in empty space or away from them, through what are you moving? He shook his head, crossing his arms. Nothing. Nothing, I repeated. But if there's absolutely nothing between you, how can you be so far apart? And is there a limit to how far apart you can be? If there's no limit, then what you call space must be infinite. And you do not even know what it is. But it is obviously something, because without it, Nothing could exist. So nothing does exist. Do you see? Nothing matters. 
That's pretty clever, he said, putting his hands on his hips. So have you never felt the space inside you? Inside me? The place where you live, inside. The infinite space, just like that space out there. Here I pointed toward the ocean, the sky. Space where time is an illusion, just as your physical body is only a shell. But what you can't see, what people call nothing, matters most. The one true reality. Travis cocked his chin, looking at me. Hey, uh, you want to come up for a drink? He said, finally. We sat in his living room, or rather, great room, drinking single malt scotch. Told me he was tired of doing interviews and talking about books and movies, and that it was nice to meet someone genuine like me. I pretended ignorance of the fame, which had enabled him to afford a 4,600-square-foot luxury home on the beach, with cathedral ceilings, teak furnishings, Italian marble tables and countertops, and a 95-inch flat-screen HD TV which hung on the wall like a piece of modern art, next to an original Warhol. He tried to impress me, if only to test me. But I clung to character, like the actor who doesn't know if he'll ever work again. Still, when he mentioned the Ferrari that he had taken on order and that he'd met with Gwyneth and Giselle at one of Gerda's parties in the Hamptons, I felt my breaking point coming. And so, to shut him up, I said, Have you ever heard that the most important thing is the letting go of ego? and of waiting, and even of seeking. That was my test for him. And true to remembered form, Travis lifted an index finger into the air. Oh, that's right. I almost forgot. Run that by me again? The tissue of the body is the harbor and the weir, I said watching him with a steady, judging gaze. Only in the eternal present does virtue find its home. He didn't appear to be nearing the end of his curiosity about me, or rather his need for a drinking buddy. Not quite yet, unfortunately for him. That's really deep there, Deepak, he said. And you know... I'm all for the present, too. The past is what sucks. Virtue? Come on. Where's the fun in that? You sound like one of those writer wannabes who plague me, begging advice on how to make the big time. Them with their pithy quotes, bad poems, and pathetic diaries. And what advice do you give them? I asked, as calmly as I could manage. He chuckled. Advice? I tell them to try the lottery. You need luck to win at that game, too. He laughed giddily as he poured himself another. Anyway, writing is like a drug for those losers. They can't stop, but who the hell cares? They should realize it's a game, only the top 50 can win. The lists, people who rewrite the same story year after year. Which is what I plan to do too, by the way, now that I'm in. He slurped greedily at his scotch. Oh, it was all explained to me by the big boys in New York and LA. You should have heard him. Good thing my luck held up long enough to get me there. Means this is just a starter house, my man. Want to see my work table? Looks like a lazy Susan. Work on a book, turn it. Work on a script. 
What's the difference? It's all the same predictable thrills that the masses have been conditioned to want. Same reason they go to McDonald's while the mom and pop restaurants go belly up. Same reason they worship golf or basketball and pony up their kids' milk money for tickets. Am I right? Unfortunately for him, he was right. And tipsy. So tipsy that when I told him the 18 words, he thought that was funny too. What did I do then? Not much. After I wrote down the 18 on a cocktail napkin and attached them to his stainless steel refrigerated door with a Hollywood tourist magnet, just so he'd remember them when sober, I came up behind him with a stack of five hardcovers instead of another Heineken. And while he was watching a Raiders game on his big screen, I hit him right on the top of his head as hard as I could when he leaned forward. That's all. There was an audible crack then, and I suppose that's because older necks aren't as able to sustain the kind of impact younger ones can. But you can see that it was an accident, can't you? I didn't mean to actually break his neck after all. And he wasn't dead when I left him either. I swear to you, he looked up at me from the floor and said, I know you. You're not really a Buddhist. And you're not really a writer either, I said pointing at the five copies of Fate's Shadow on the floor beside him. You haven't suffered enough. On my way back down to the beach, I saw what I took for a security camera under the eaves above the deck. One that I hadn't noticed before. I jerked it free, pulling hard at the cords and even went back inside for a moment, looking for the recorder. I asked Travis where it was, but he only laughed at me through his pain. So I pulled the cords free of the wall completely, gave up, and left with Travis laughing at me once again. Right. That's the reason I didn't call 911. You know, they say accidents happen all the time. I think by now we both know that's true. Of course, the fact that I didn't know his security camera was really a webcam can't technically be called an accident. Even though Travis never mentioned that he and Gerda used it to allow their distant friends and relatives to see them enjoying the deck. But I think that was the fire caused by my pulling those cords qualifies as an accident. Or an act of God. There was certainly no fire when I left. So how did I know that my forgetting the lock I'd placed on Travis's gate would prevent the firemen from reaching him in time? Can you answer me that? Whoever you are. I hope you enjoyed Fate's Shadow, as written by Jonathan Lowe and performed by Nick Goroff. You can hear more of author Jonathan Lowe over on Friday's show, Drew Blood's Dark Tales. Our second tale of the evening is written by Nathan Peel and is performed by Drew Blood. In it, a mysterious and ominous man covered in desert dust enters a small bar, radiating an unsettling power. After his departure, the oppressive atmosphere dissipates and the barkeeper discovers a grotesque aftermath. The town is left in a state of shocked relief, haunted by the encounter. Now, without further ado, I present to you 
Apotheosis. The saloon door shrieked against their hinges as they slammed backwards. If ever there was a man, this was him. Covered head to toe in the dust of the surrounding desert, save for the small rivulets left behind by his sweat, he filled the small bar with a powerful presence. Kind of tainted, though. Godforsaken and corrupt. It was hard for those that saw him to pin down exactly what was off about him. Maybe it was the way he held himself. Postured arrogantly, like everyone in the room belonged to him. Or those chromatic animalistic eyes and shit-eating grin that shoved their way into every mind in the room right alongside that strangling power. It radiated from him, reverberating in between particles of dust, smelling of bright light and cold metal and rotten flesh. His eyes scoured the room, primed their way into dark recesses and under dirty tables. What he was searching for hadn't been here. Making this stop would mean staying overnight, which he did not want to do, but if he didn't get some whiskey in him soon, there would be hell to pay. He strutted over to the grimy bar stools, wrenching that unholy power behind him, and perched smugly atop it calling for the barkeep to slide him some spirits. The barkeeper was hesitant to comply, regarding the man with fearful caution, frozen like a scared jackrabbit. He had seen a man like him before, only once, and he never forgot it. Came in sparkling like a wildfire, chest all covered in blood and scared everyone half to death. You could see the stab wounds in his vest, they were fresh, still steadily leaking blood, but he sat down normal as anything and ordered a whiskey. A few minutes later, a woman came in and stood in front of the doors, pale as anything and radiating a rage so palpable it hurt just to look at her. That man had lunged at her, landed a kick right in the center of her chest and sent her flying off the porch. There was a scuffle and a shrill scream and then it got real quiet. So a few men slipped out to see what had gone down. There was the woman, slumped on her knees. The aberrant man was nowhere. She hadn't seemed too badly hurt, except her leg was skewed at an odd angle. They had run up to her to try and get her to the doctor, but couldn't move her. Turned out, it was her femur that had been broken. The woman had just sat like that for four days, crying and whispering nonsense words. The barkeeper had tried many times to ask her about what had happened, but he understood none of what she was saying. They tried to treat her where she was, but she wouldn't cooperate. Every time they touched her, she would begin to shriek and tear at her mouth. They stopped trying to help her after she had peeled her lower lip part of the way off and wrenched out a few of her teeth. Whatever that man had done, aside from snap her femur like a chicken bone, was beyond any medicine the doctors could administer. On the fourth night, she screamed and screamed. The commotion was all too much for the townsfolk, so the sheriff sent a boy to put her out of her misery. Moments later, there was a gunshot and the screaming stopped. But when the sheriff went out to see it through, the woman was gone, and the boy was dead. Shot himself, it seemed. The gun was still in his hands, and to where the woman ended up, the barkeep didn't know. But he swore he woke up one night to her guttural shrieks coming from outside the bar. He had had some downright crazy people come through his bar, but none as wildly dangerous as that mystery man had been, until he showed up. To say the least, he was spooked. So there he stood, struck dumb by this deviantly gorgeous man that set his teeth on edge and made the hairs on his arms prickle. The strange fellow's bright green eyes locked with the barkeeper's watery blue ones, and he raised his eyebrow in a silent question. The barkeep snapped out of his funk and reached with sweaty, shaking hands for one of the whiskey bottles. He let the honey-gold alcohol pour, 
not noticing when it slipped over the top and ran between his fingers and all over the table. He lifted the glass, the trimmer in his hands making the liquid slosh and spill over even more. The man snatched it up with calloused hands and drained it. The barkeeper stared with appalled enchantment. In the back of his mind, behind the terrified signals his body was sending to get as far away from whoever this was as fast as he could, he noticed that the glass he had filled had been a pint, and this man had sucked it down as easily as air. He asked for another, to which the barkeep complied, working in a trance, his shaking hands filling glass after glass for what seemed like weeks not sparing a thought to wonder how the man was still alive. The man drank until one of the less hideous of the barmaids caught his eye, and he began to talk, his words incoherent and messy, breath reeking of alcohol. Later, the barmaid would tell her sister about the man in the bar and how pretty he was, but how there was something unreal about him that gave her pause. She wouldn't tell her how, when his hand brushed her arm, she had been sick in her mouth because in her head she saw those wolves from last summer feeding on the body of Bart Warren's, after he'd been shot up all bloody, except they weren't wolves this time. No one in the bar had left since the man had come in. Barely anyone had moved. Every single one of them sat horrified and enamored by this anomaly fearing that if they made any motion to leave, they would be dead before their second step. Not everyone remembered the previous encounter like the barkeep did, but not a soul there didn't feel that vile energy in the room with them. At a certain point, the man just sat. The depraved presence still lingered, but it seemed to have condensed and settled above him, almost palpable. Then he spoke again, but this time it was with all the clarity in the world. He spoke with a strained reverence about something out in the desert that wasn't human anymore, something that whispered about broken things and hadn't any mouth. His voice reverberated hauntingly, conjuring up memories that made the barkeep drop the glass he was holding. Took my Jesse, he murmured. Took my Jesse and looked at my insides. He wrenched up his shirt to reveal his tanned torso, marred by a large scar that lay across his whole stomach in a jagged upside-down T, and pointed to something outside that was lost to the remaining bargoers. He stood and stumbled over to the grimy window, staring silently into the dark. The man spun on his heels, spurs clinking softly in the pregnant silence of the stuffy bar. Don't nobody ever let that bastard look at your insides, he announced to the general public. Not one tiny peak, not even one. You can't. Don't you fucking let it. The people sat in silence, stupefied in the perverse attentiveness as he spoke gesturing vaguely to the empty space in the room. He chuckled, his chin dropping onto his <laughs> chest. The air pulsed. One little tug is all it takes. And then... He vomited, chunks battering onto the wooden floor and seeping languidly through the slots between boards. Tears dripped sluggishly down the sides of his face, tracking more lines alongside those his sweat had already left. No one breathed. His body was shaking convulsively, silhouetted in the creamy lamplight that filtered through the opaque windows from the porch. The man spat in his own sick and let out a bark that stuck in the stagnant, acrid air like a grotesque punctuation. He stayed there for a moment, standing surrealistically in the pool of his own vomit, every soul in the bar watching his every move with a detached veneration, before he turned robotically and stepped through the doors of the saloon into the empty desert outside. As the man left, whatever godforsaken thing he had dragged in with him was sucked back out into the dry night, leaving a charred and iniquitous aftertaste in its wake. 
The departure of the man left everyone in a state of shocked relief and still nobody dared move. The barkeep broke the tension, stepping out from behind the bar with a bucket and rag in hand to sop up the mess. He didn't want any part of whatever that man was to be left anywhere near him, let alone any cursed puke to stain his wood floors. Slowly, warily, people began to make their way outside, careful to give the stinking mess a wide berth. As the last shaking customers made their way out, the barkeeper stepped outside to empty his foul bucket. The water sloshed and cascaded, glittering over the porch rail, emptying its contents onto the dry earth below. It wouldn't be until tomorrow morning that he would discover the solid mat of hair and what appeared to be several human teeth among the stinking whiskey-soaked dirt. I hope you enjoyed Apotheosis, as written by Nathan Peel and performed by Drew Blood. On to the shows. Longtime resident Otis Jiry has his very own show here on our network, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, which you can hear every Sunday night. We also have Eric Peabody's Horror Hill, a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. We hope you check him out. And Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern down-home horror. And don't forget to check out the Fear from the Heartland archives, featuring more than 120 episodes. Well, friends, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go... I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. See you next Monday. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.